nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a sobering talk with Three Mile Island Alert's security consultant, Scott Portsline, about cyber attacks that have already taken place against nuclear facilities here and abroad, and what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the industry are not yet doing to protect these vulnerable facilities. Then we will have remembrances of our great scientist warrior, Dr. Alexei Yablokov, the man responsible for us knowing the real damage wrought by Chernobyl. We'll hear from his collaborators and friends, Dr. Janet Sherman and Dr. Chris Busby, as well as a soundbite recorded at Dr. Helen Caldicott's 2013 Symposium on the Medical and Environmental Consequences of the Fukushima Nuclear Accident. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness. The nuclear reactor duck and cover report on what's gone wrong with those aging, dangerous rust buckets, and based on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's event reports, the European report with Sean McGee, and more honest nuclear information than will be contained in the U.S. inauguration this Friday and all the coverage thereof. And all of this will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 17, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in North St. Louis with some potentially good news about the Westlake landfill situation for the residents of Spanish Village, a subdivision adjacent to that site. A proposal sponsored by State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadel would allow Spanish Village homeowners to apply to have their property purchased by the state. The measure would also mandate that sellers and realtors disclose the issues with the landfill before signing a deed over. Down to the south and east, it's not moon over Miami, it's rad waste beneath it. Florida Power and Light has won a battle to store radioactive waste under Miami's drinking water aquifer, despite the fact that multiple studies have warned that waste could one day seep into the drinking water. A small group of activists called Citizens Allied for Safe Energy, or CASE, tried to stop this plan, but their legal petition was shot down for procedural grounds because it was filed, quote, inexcusably late, end quote, in FPL's application process. Can't let common sense or science get in the way of the nuclear bureaucracy's juggernaut. FPL plans to store contaminated water used to clean the reactors as well as radioactive waste under the aquifer. What could go wrong? Up to Massachusetts, where the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station, 
one of the poorest performers in the nation, based on a rating system used by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, nine security violations were identified during a routine December 1st security inspection. This according to a letter sent last Friday from the NRC to Energy Corporation, Pilgrim's owner-operator. Although details of the violations were not made public because they relate to security, one infraction involved the storage of radioactive material which must be kept in, quote, robust structures, end quotes, under federal regulations. David Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project for the Union of Concerned Scientists, said, There is a silver lining. Given Pilgrim's underperformance on safety issues, terrorists might not target Pilgrim. They'd spend lots of time and money planning an attack on Pilgrim, only to have the plant melt down by itself a week before the planned attack. And if that's not reason to duck (coughs) and cover, here are some others. Again at Pilgrim on January 16, there was failure of reactor building isolation dampers to isolate, an event or condition that could have prevented the fulfillment of the safety function of the structure systems that are needed to control the release of radioactive material or mitigate the consequences of an accident. (coughs) At Fitzpatrick in New York, one of the reactors, Governor Andrew Cuomo, is shoring up with funds stolen, excuse me, reappropriated from sustainable energy funds. There was a degraded condition due to through-wall leak, which constitutes a defect in the primary cooling system, a condition that results in the condition of the nuclear power plant, including its principal safety barriers, being seriously degraded. (coughs) Comanche Peak in Texas on January 11. They found more Teflon in containment spray pump components. And also on the 11th at Vogel in Georgia, a non-licensed supervisor tested positive for alcohol. (coughs) And as if that wasn't enough. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's on a week. An image is worth a thousand facts in this post-truth world. And the dizzying spin picture of the week goes to the ribbon-cutting ceremony at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant that took place on January 9th. In that picture, big smiling, is chunky-haired, outgoing Energy Secretary Ernest Monimonis and New Mexico Governor Susanna Martinez, formally reopening the WIP site in Carlsbad, New Mexico. This underground waste repository for plutonium-contaminated nuclear weapons waste was shut down after February 14, 2014, when a 55-gallon drum of radioactive waste exploded, contaminating the underground, releasing plutonium and americium, contaminating the ventilation stack, and basically mucking things up and shutting them down. Something that... Secretary Moni Moni's swore would be put into operation again before the end of his term. And so it appears it has happened. But wait, there are contrary voices saying maybe this isn't such a good idea. Don Hancock, director of the Nuclear Waste Program at the Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque, says the decision to open the facility is premature. He says the areas that they're putting waste in is contaminated. There's not enough ventilation in the mine, and there are extreme problems with what is typically called ground control, 
what citizens think of as ceilings collapsing and floors heaving. Hancock notes that these problems have not been fixed, and just last November, tens of tons of salt collapsed in one of the rooms being considered for future storage of radioactive waste. Mm-mm-mm. Jay Coughlin, director of Nuclear Watch New Mexico, notes operations at WIP will remain significantly curtailed for the foreseeable future because of the contamination down there. Workers are having to work in full protective suits, and things are just going to be slow. And then there's the contamination of the workers who were on site the night of the accident, 21 of whom showed urine or fecal samples that contained detectable amounts of plutonium and or americium. That's internal contamination by some of the most deadly radionuclides on the face of the planet. But, of course, the powers that be says, Hey! It was just a little. It was barely detectable. Without bothering to differentiate between external and internal contamination, which is what was discovered, which puts radionuclides up close and personal with the human body from the inside out. But that does not take away from that happy, smiling picture and the slick nuclear rah-rah article that was published in Forbes.com by James Conka. Steve Forbes being heavily invested in nukes. But you gotta keep the spin spinning. So that's why Ernest Moni Moniz and all the other apologists for the reopening of the whip site, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed. None that's out of week. Over to Japan for the big question. When is radioactive waste not radioactive waste? Answer. When Japan's Environment Ministry lifts the radioactive designation it applied to a batch of waste after the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident began. About 200 kilograms of waste stored at a private facility in Yamagata Prefecture can now be disposed of as general waste because the ministry has lifted the designation for waste kept by a private company in connection with the nuclear accident. There's about 179,000 tons of waste designated as radioactive stashed around the country, so there are a lot more labels just ripe for the changing. Now here's the European report with Sean McGee, based in Ireland. In this week's report, I was going to be discussing the Ukraine and its energy policy. Now, the Ukraine itself, some back history to it, has been plagued by financial difficulties of all sorts. It pays more for its gas, for instance, since it stopped importing the Russian gas. It's now getting its gas from Norway, but actually at a higher rate. Now, just a few oligarchs are actually running the Ukrainian energy policy, and there has been some discussion amongst experts that have discussed the issues with this uh, lack of transparency, possibilities for corruption. When money is put into Ukraine, they're not sure exactly where it's going. So European Commission is strangely silent on Ukraine's energy policy as a whole, as Ukraine has serious problems with this issue. In this last week, we see that Russia has had difficulty with an agreement that it set up in 2010 and has just officially stopped the agreement with Ukraine on two nuclear reactors. So we're basically seeing that the Ukraine will now have to access Western nuclear suppliers and technology, which, of course, is going to be much more expensive as well. There is a solar plant that will be being built in Chernobyl, but there's no 
timeline for this, although it gets reported about once a week. Now, the Ukraine disengaged or didn't vote for the nuclear test ban treaty in a recent vote. In the next 10 weeks, we're going to be seeing the vote ratified by many countries. The countries in Europe that currently have NATO troops in generally voted against, as did Norway and various other countries. The USA, Israel and other countries voted for, and as I said, many of the Eastern European countries voted to keep the actual nuclear weapons. Now, we go on to the fact that Ukraine, President Poroshenko, has said that many Ukrainians risk becoming disillusioned with Ukraine's pro-European path, and if there are further delays to cement deals, bringing closer integration with the EU, and obviously we're seeing a lot of lack of luster with the EU Commission in this regard, but uh, issues of corruption and a lack of transparency are stopping such deals going forward financing, energy, are becoming much more costly and financial reform is slow going. Now, last week we reported on Switzerland's reactors and that uh, in the next month, in February, they will be putting armed guards around their nuclear reactors, uh, possibly because of lots of security issues that are going on in Europe at the moment. Now, an update on uh, Swiss reactors is there are two reactors in that country and they are basically having problems with their reactor casings and carbon in the steel. And this was reported in last week's Nuclear Hot Seat, and uh, we'll be linking to that comprehensive discussion from Paul Gunther on the issues that these reactors are having all around the world, including the USA. Going to the UK now, we see that Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party leader, has said that he would be not happy about the nuclear reactor at Moorside. This has caused a riff within the Labour Party, but it does appear that Labour are against nuclear in a more general sense. And in Copeland, we see that the Green Party are basically coming out against nuclear and on their upcoming election policies. Overall in Europe, it might be worth mentioning that we're seeing great ramp-up of security issues and the nuclear reactors in Europe, of which there are many, are certainly being problematic and that may be the reason why we're seeing such uh, aggression against activists in Europe, including France, we have reported before. Next week we'll be covering a larger look at what's happening in, in Europe, its nuclear reactors and the security issues. Lastly, I'd like to bring us to Portugal, who have just made a complaint to Brussels concerning Spain's nuclear waste dump plans, trying to build a waste dump near the Tigris, which crosses into Portugal. And then, obviously, Portugal have said that they've not been consulted on this. Existing treaty clearly needs to be upheld. Portugal has made their complaints to and we'll be uh, keeping you updated on that uh, issue in the near future. That was Sean McGee reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat from Ireland. We'll have our featured interview in just a moment, but first, hey, it's a new year and a new chance for you to support Nuclear Hot Seat. You know, any size donation is welcome. It doesn't matter the amount, it's the thought that counts. And if you have ongoing thoughts about the show... You can sign up as a monthly sustainer. At $5 a month, think of it as a Starbucks donation. What it would cost to take me out for a cup of coffee, plus tax and a decent tip to the barista. 
This money will go to support some website changes we're wanting to make this year that are aimed at making NuclearHotSeat.com even more searchable and user-friendly. So show your support for Nuclear Hot Seat's verifiable nuclear news, unique interviews, and an attitude that speaks truth to nuclear power. You know you want to. So come on, step up now. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help, you've got my gratitude. Cybersecurity at nuclear reactors. What could be more important? And what could be more ignored? Today's featured guest has something to say about that. Scott Portsline is the security consultant to Three Mile Island Alert in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He's also a longtime one-man support system for Nuclear Hot Seat. Scott recently came out with some crucial information about what can go wrong cyber-wise with nuclear reactors, and the resulting information is, to be gentle about it, sobering. We spoke last week. Scott, thanks for joining us. Last month, the U.N. Deputy Secretary General, Jan Eliasson, warned about the threats against nuclear plants. What is going on that would cause him to issue this urgent warning to the U.N. Security Council? He told the Security Council of the growing nexus between terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, and cyber attacks. He said that vicious groups are seeking weapons of mass destruction and already are committing acts of mass disruption with cyber attacks. And he fears that a nightmare scenario is coming where a nuclear power plant will be overcome by a cyber attack and create uncontrollable releases of radioactivity. His opinion is that the threat is growing and that the time is nearing. On top of that, British Prime Minister David Cameron warned that the dangers of ISIS getting control of nuclear materials is only too real. Then he went on to warn that ISIS is planning to use crop duster-like drones to spray radioactive materials over western cities. So we face a new threat, and the new terminology, dirty drones. He said that thousands of people could be killed. Well, I disagree with that analysis, but it is possible that thousands of cancers could result from such an attack. It's also possible that no one would be killed immediately, but the fear and the economic consequences would be enormous. Let's come back to the drones a little bit later. Was there any discussion from the European leaders of any cyber attacks launched against nuclear power plants? Yes. In October of last year, the director of the International Atomic Energy Agency revealed that two years ago, a nuclear power plant had been hacked with a disruptive attack. Where did that occur? I'm not sure where that happened because he didn't say, but from some of the clues I was able to gather, I think it was a plant in Germany. Have there been any incidents of cyber attacks that we know of at U.S. nuclear plants? A computer expert inside the nuclear industry estimates that there's already been about 50 cyber hacks of the control systems at U.S. plants, but only two or three of these have ever been made public, so I'll tell you about those. The earliest publicized attack was on the Davis-Bessing nuclear plant in Ohio. When did that take place? That happened in 2003. A virus called the Slammer Worm entered the control room through the corporate office's network. 
it bridged the supposedly separate networks, bypassing the security firewall, and entering the safety systems network, which is exactly what many executives didn't consider as an entry point possibility. What happened next was the safety parameter display panels went blank. This is the important display system in the control room, which operators watch for the details of the plant safety systems and plant functions during normal and accident conditions. Fortunately, the reactor was offline at the time of the attack, so there was no safety risk as a result. Then, in August of 2006, at Browns Ferry Unit 3 in Alabama, there was a failure of both reactor recirculation pumps and the condensate demineralizer controller. Without the recirculation pumps, the reactor could not maintain its cooling, so the reactor had to be shut down manually to avoid an accident. After weeks of investigating, it was determined the problem resulted from a data storm on the network controlling the systems which failed. The data storm was believed to be a normal computer hardware breakdown. But the debate continues as to whether this was a nefarious act or not. However, the incident does show what can happen to a network even when a faulty virus or a poorly written virus clogs up a network with a data storm. Cyber attacks don't have to be perfect to cause damage or disruption. Another example happened at the Georgia Hatch nuclear plant in March of 2008. There was an unplanned automatic shutdown after an engineer applied a software update to a computer on the plant's business corporate network. When the engineer rebooted the computer, a synchronization program reset the data on the control network. But the control systems interpreted this reset as a sudden drop in the reactor's water reservoirs, and it initiated the automatic shutdown. But I think I found one event a few years ago that has not been reported as a cyber attack. This happened in the southeastern United States. There was a problem with replacement steam generators when they went to start them up for the first time. They did not act at all the way they were supposed to after an operator installed software on the units from a thumb drive. And it took controllers between two to three weeks for the problems to be resolved. What about the Stuxnet virus? That's the one that disabled the Iranian nuclear enrichment centrifuges. Have we heard the last of that one? Now we've learned that the Stuxnet virus did have unintended consequences in disabled portions of an unnamed Soviet nuclear plant. Other experts pointed out that the virus did attack about 100 industries here in the United States. I really think that virus is going to raise its ugly head again as hackers have been able to get a copy of the coding and alter it and modify it to suit their needs. Last month, you participated in an NRC cybersecurity meeting. Here's the key question. How well are U.S. nuclear plants protected from cyber attacks? I'm really worried about that because we don't even know where we stand for sure. I got to ask four questions that revealed a lot about the weaknesses at our nuclear plants. I asked, has the NRC ever performed simulated attacks on a sampling of nuclear plants to identify where we stand? And the answer was no. And then I asked, have any utilities hired any contractors to attempt hacking into the nuclear systems? Duke Energy offered that their internal IT experts with forensic capabilities did examine the systems, but they had not hired outside contractors. Well, I don't see that exactly as the fox guarding the hen house, but I do see it as allowing there to be blind spots. 
because the people who are preparing this security and who are testing the security will have blind spots. Then I asked them if the NRC has a real-time situational awareness program. In other words, in an effort to prevent concerted cyber attacks as part of the response efforts, does the NRC have a real-time clearinghouse to understand cyber troubles and warn other plants of suspected attacks? And again, the answer was no. Now on this point, seven years ago, the NRC had agreed with me behind closed doors that a situational awareness program should be enacted. And it's difficult to determine whether any cyber troubles that are happening at the plant are the result of an attack. It takes time to do this. So there's the difficulty of differentiating between normal computer problems and a malicious attack. That delay could prove very costly to the nuclear fleet, the American people, and the United States of America as an economic whole. If such a clearinghouse received multiple reports of cyber troubles around the same time, this could be an indication of a concerted attack. And finally, I asked if the NRC has a rule on withdrawing the network access of any nuclear power plant employee who is about to be dismissed. Again, the answer was no. So they don't have hard rules where they could. And I think in this case, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to be prescriptive rather than allowing the plants to figure out their own rules. Now keep in mind, this is 16 years after the 9-11 attacks. And we know that in 2007, an IBM researcher named Scott Lunsford offered to hack into a nuclear plant, and he was told it would be impossible. The owner of the plant said there was no connection via the Internet and that no manipulation of the critical components could occur. After his test, he said, quote, It turned out to be one of the easiest penetration tests I'd ever done. By the first day, we had penetrated the network. Within a week, we were controlling a nuclear power plant, and I thought, gosh, this is a big problem, end quote. So the three biggest things which I see need fixing right now is the situational awareness issue, the fact that we don't really know where we stand because there's been no independent testing, and that the NRC is reluctant to be prescriptive with hard and fast rules about things like employees who are about to be dismissed. This sounds like a recipe for guaranteed disaster at some place down the line. Now, you attended a Department of Homeland Security program on cybersecurity in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, two months ago. What did you take away from that seminar? Well, first of all, the data seemed to be 10 years old, but I don't fault DHS for that because I think the audience, a large segment of the audience, was behind by quite a number of years. But I do have some complaints about the lack of simple solutions which they could have presented to the audience. First of all, they never defined cyberspace. And without knowing that your fax machine, your walkie-talkies like the guards use at nuclear power plants are all considered part of cyberspace, how would the people at the seminar apply the lessons they're trying to teach you to all of their business assets? So the new fear that's going around and been in the news recently is ransomware, where a hacker locks up your computer, encrypts the data, and then holds your data hostage to a ransom payment. Even if you make a payment to the hacker, there's no guarantee you're going to get a decryption key. But there was no mention of free software that's available from Malwarebytes to prevent ransomware. 
Also, they discuss the need to change your passwords on a regular basis, on a very frequent basis. Yet, once again, there was no discussion about password managing software that will memorize your long list of different passwords for you and make it easy to drag and drop them into the programs that you're using online. So I worry that this lag in knowledge and the lack of leadership from the top down is going to harm a lot of people. Scott, you also researched lost and stolen nuclear materials in the United States. Tell us about the bizarre case of a man planning to build a death ray from nuclear materials. Is such a thing even possible? Last month in a New York federal courtroom, a 52-year-old industrial mechanic and self-professed member of the KKK was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison for plotting to build an industrial x-ray machine that would shoot out a directed beam of lethal radiation and it would have been powerful enough to kill from a distance. His plan was to place the battery-powered machine inside a truck or van and then park the vehicle outside Muslim institutions and then activate it from a remote location. I'm not going to describe the nuclear materials and the details of how he was going to build this device, but yes, he could have made a death ray. During the sting operation, which led to his arrest, the man bragged about his invention as, quote, Hiroshima on a light switch, and that everything with respiration would be dead by the morning, end quote. Oh, boy, as if we don't have enough to worry about. There's also been some other bizarre and quite worrisome events over French nuclear plants last year involving drones. And you have some details about that, do you not? The drones that flew over all of France's nuclear plants were complex and expensive, and they were not like the toy or amateur drones that you purchase online or from your hobby shop. These had powerful engines, some big enough for explosives, and they were sort of a scene out of uh, some of these UFO shows where they had uh, a triangle of three white lights and a larger red light. And they would shine a spotlight or a searchlight, possibly linked to a camera, some experts believe, which threw intermittent beams of light onto the target that they were observing. These drones are too small to be detected with conventional radar. We know that French Army helicopters were observed trying to intercept the drones, but the drones were able to lose them. On one particular night, at five different nuclear sites, hundreds of miles apart, the drones showed up, which suggested an elaborate advance plan by groups of several people. This put the government on high alert. The soldiers are authorized to shoot down any of the drones, but while they are over the plants, there's fear that the drone could cause some damage, especially if it were carrying explosives. So no drones have been shot down thus far. I have more of that I could say on this topic, but it just gives away too much information that I'm just not comfortable saying publicly. The threat is profound. I think you have made that point very clearly. Is there anything else you would like to say about cybersecurity? I think it's very important that we need to learn that cyber hygiene is everyone's responsibility. In fact, it's a matter of national security. Hackers can use your personal computer and handheld devices against the United States, whether it be a denial of service attack, a data storm, or a place to nest a virus to attack a nuclear plant. 
Well, Scott, we will stay in touch with you to learn more as you feel comfortable sharing it. And thanks for joining us this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Scott Portsline, the security consultant to Three Mile Island Alert. Now on to a different kind of a story. Our movement is not so robust that we can stand to lose any of our frontline leaders, let alone someone who was a giant in our field. Thus, it is a deep sadness to report the passing of Alexei Yablokov. It was Dr. Yablokov who brought together the work of dissident Soviet scientists and revealed to the world, first in Russian and then in English, the true health impacts of the Chernobyl nuclear catastrophe. His hard work and dedication underlies the continuing opposition to the nuclear industry today, as when the nuclear so-called experts maintain that there really are no dangers from radiation, we have the true history of Chernobyl's impact on health to counter them with, and it is all due to Dr. Yablokov. To mark his passing, and to share with you the remarkable nature of his many accomplishments and their importance to those of us who oppose nuclear. Nuclear Hot Seat has put together a memorial report. In this first piece, we talk with Dr. Janet Sherman, who edited the English language of Dr. Yablokov's book, Chernobyl, Consequences for People and the Environment. Dr. Janet Sherman, thank you so much for joining me this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, it's an honor to be here. First of all, my condolences to you on the loss of your friend and colleague, Alexei Yablokov, who was so important to us all. Oh, yes. He was a great human being. How did you first become aware of Alexei Yablokov and his work? I have a, a friend and colleague, anti-nuclear person, was Jay Gould. Now, not that Jay Gould. We're talking about the economist Jay Gould. And he called me and said he had just heard Alexei speak in New York City, and he said, you've got to hear him. And Alexei was scheduled to speak at the Reagan Center, and I had originally said I would never go in the building, but I went. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> He was there with the Bellona group, and I met him, and I was so impressed. And then I realized that these people did not have a nickel between them, no money at all. So I invited him to dinner, and we became friends. I was very interested in what he was doing, and I had worked for the Atomic Energy Commission back in the 1950s at the University of California, Berkeley. What did you do for them there? I was a, a radiological monitor. I marched around with a Geiger counter and an alpha counter to see if things were leaking or anything was spilled. And then I worked for the Navy, U.S. Navy Radiological Laboratory in Hunters Point in San Francisco. And there we did studies on nuclear and radiation burns. It was pretty disgusting research on the animals. And we also got animals that had been radiated at the test site in Nevada. Wow. I had no idea of this aspect of your work. And this points to us having another discussion at another time. Okay. But bringing this back to Alexei Yablokov, what year was it that you first met him? And from that first dinner, how did things progress? I think it was 
about 2010, but I'm not certain because we just had dinner and then we kept in touch by email. And then 2011 is when things really boiled up. He had flown into Washington just to go to a meeting, nothing special. And four days before he flew in was when Fukushima happened. And he was scheduled to stay at my apartment. When he got here, he said, they will never clean up Fukushima. And then he was here, and I contacted a couple people, and we had four film crews in my living room interviewing him. Then, this is 2011, right after Fukushima. And he was very, very impressive. At this point, his book had been published in Russia. Is that correct? Right, and he had asked me to edit it. He said, I have no money and I cannot pay you. And somebody had done a machine translation of his book on Chernobyl. And he asked me, would I edit it? And I said, sure. And I figured it would take about four months. Well, it took 14 months. (laughs) (laughs) And this book, of course, is Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. That's right. Now, this is the book that he had originally published in Russia. Tell us a bit of background on how that came about and what it consisted of. He got this book published in in Russia, and there was an offer from somebody at the New York Academy of Sciences to publish it in, in America. But then there was a big hue and cry by the nuclear industry not to publish this book. Absolutely should not see the light of day in English. And what was their objection to the book, if you can bring that forward for the listeners? Well, we shouldn't worry about nuclear power. It's perfectly safe. There's no problems at all with waste or anything like that was their idea. But he did ask me, would I edit it? And I did. And we were able to get it published by the New York Academy of Sciences because they had signed a contract before all this hue and cry came out against it. They only published a few copies. There were not a lot. And then an independent publisher... Oh, mercy, I can't remember his name. In Pennsylvania, published a bunch more, and people could order it. And then Alexei decided to have it put on the Internet so nobody could be without it, and it would be free for anybody who wanted to download it. Give people an idea as to what that content was and is in the book that made the nuclear industry so upset and so adamant about putting it down. Well, you know, we talked about the adverse effects of of radiation. I mean, (laughs) this is not a safe technology. It has, you know, lots of problems with waste and with mining the ore and with all that goes along with radiation. My understanding is that the book compiles results of over 6,000 studies That's right. See, that's the point that people don't understand. This wasn't just some Russian scientist talking about, gee, radiation is bad. He went through the published literature in the Eastern European languages that never appeared 
in English and compiled over 6,000 of them to come up with the results that he did. You're absolutely correct, and it's the effect on the flora, the fauna, the microbiology, uh, the atmosphere, the water, everything. I mean, he really did an unbelievable summary of these 6,000 articles that were published independently, mostly in Russia and the Ukraine, and did not appear before the public. Yablokov's conclusion, which was based upon his research, was that 985,000 people, almost a million people, died as a result of the consequences of Chernobyl and the radiation release, most of them from cancer. Yet the World Health Organization officially posited that there were fewer than 50 deaths. Pay no attention to that disaster. Move along with your life. There's no problem there. That is an astonishing discrepancy. You're right. (laughs) In your opinion, what explains that discrepancy? Yablokov was a scientist, and he was a very methodical scientist, and he understood the effects of nuclear radiation, and the industry did not want any stop, any development of nuclear. They really wanted to press forward with more nuclear power plants and say, this is perfectly harmless. Lied. What, if any, consequences did... Professor Yablokov, Dr. Yablokov's face for publishing the book in Russia and then for letting it out in the West in English. Fortunately, he was not imprisoned, as was Nikitin, who was the forerunner who published on the effects of the ships and submarines in the Arctic. So Yablokov escaped being imprisoned. But of course, he never received a whole lot of support from the government. If people wish to have a copy of their own, how can they go about getting one now? You can go to my site, www.janetsherman.com. The entire book is there, and somebody can just go ahead and download it. We will also put a link up for a download, a free download of the book on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. Yes. In terms of an epitaph for Dr. Yablokov, an epitaph for the man, what do you think it should say? I think it should say that he was a supporter of humanity and the environment without exception. Dr. Janet Sherman, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts and remembrances on the passing of Dr. Alexei Yablokov. Well, thank you for caring and doing this program. Dr. Janet Sherman. A link to a free PDF of the Chernobyl book in English is up on her website, JanetSherman.com, and will also be up on the Nuclear Hot Seat website under this episode, Number 291. Next, here's Dr. Christopher Busby talking about his work on nuclear matters in collaboration with a man who became a close friend of his, Alexei Yablokov. First of all, Alexei was a friend of mine and a colleague, and he was on the steering group of the European Committee on Radiation Risk. And so, I mean, he was 83, so, you know, I mean, it's not such a bad lifespan, but it's been very sad for me because the number of real scientists 
engaged in this criticism or rejigging of the radiation risk model were always rather few because, you know, you, nobody funds this sort of stuff. They were mostly old guys and women who retired. Alice Stewart and Rosalie Bertel, and they're both dead, and I say is Alexi. So that sort of leaves me and English Metzfeuert as the last two survivors as a team. I first met Alexi in Oxford in 1996, shortly after publishing my book, Wings of Death, which she had already read then. And what was immediately clear then and increasingly through our work together since then is that he, like me, saw the issue of radiation and health as one which was fundamentally a political one, and only secondarily a scientific. The other guy who was like that was Ernest Sternglass, who was also dead, and another friend of mine. So in 1998, we were amongst those a few independent scientists invited by the Green Group in the European Parliament to Brussels to advise on the transposition of the Euratom Basic Safety Standards Directive, which was new then, and which permitted the dilution of radioactive waste into consumer goods. Can you imagine? Anyway, we advised the Greens to try and block it, but then they could not, as Euratom can't be blocked by the Parliament. But they did manage to introduce a suicide clause, one which we had recently begun to employ in the UK. Also at this meeting was Jack Valentin, the Scientific Secretary of the International Commission on Radiological Protection. Uh, and after we had all soundly attacked the ICRP for ignoring the effects that were coming out of Chernobyl, Jack Valentin puffily said, Well, ICRP is an independent organization, has no special status, you can listen to any committee you want. But at this point, Alexi and I immediately saw a way forward. So with Professor Igus Metzfeuerhark and Alice Stewart and, 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 and later on Molly Scott Cater, who I was sort of married to at the time, we decided to form an alternative ICRP, the European Committee on Radiation Risk. Um, this needed an alternative risk model, and we worked on this, me and Alex here, over the five, next five years, Rosalie Bertel too, to create the first ECRR report in 2003. And Alexi organized the translation into Russian, and it quickly appeared also in French and Japanese and Spanish. And he then suggested we published a series of books and reports, and quickly he began to put together the first compilation of evidence on Chernobyl effects, which we published together in 2006, as Chernobyl 20 years on. And that's on the ECRR website. In 2004, we got Alexia to Oxford, together with Professor Elena Berlikova from the Russian Academy of Sciences, to dish the book on Chernobyl, which they did. Alexei went on then to publish with, with the late Vasily Nesterenko and, and his son Alexei, the, the, the now famous New York Academy of Sciences Chernobyl book, The Nuclear Industry Studios Spend Their Time Attacking Man. In 2000, I was with him in Kiev at the World Health Organization conference. He used to get really angry. You can see him in action in the Chertkov documentary, which is called, I think, Atomic Lies or Nuclear Controversies. It's on YouTube. And that covered all the stitch-ups at that meeting in Kiev. In 2009, he came to the Lesbos conference of the ECRR and made a presentation on Chernobyl. Later, we were in Geneva together and we stood outside the World Health Organization with our sandwich boards in the freezing cold. He and I, we took the message all over the place. Even after he became ill and had various operations, he would struggle along somehow. We, we were in East Berlin there talking about Fukushima just after the Fukushima explosions. What Alexei and Inga and I had in common was the realization that to win this battle we had to act in several domains, in the scientific literature, in the political arena, and in the legal arena also. I last saw him in Moscow about two years ago, his 80th birthday celebration, which he invited me to, and paid my ticket to, 
sort of a piss-up combined with the scientific presentations. The only other English speaker there was Tim Musso. Anyway, we hugged and cried and tossed back the vodka. So there we are, goodbye Alexei Vladimirovich, you know, a brave and powerful presence, a big man in every way, perhaps the last of the warrior scientists. A warrior scientist. That's a great phrase to use in describing Alexei Yablokov. We just heard that from Dr. Christopher Busby. We'll have a link up to Chris's article from TheEcologist.com commemorating his work and friendship with Dr. Yablokov, and this will also be linked on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 291. Finally, I was honored to meet Dr. Yablokov at Dr. Helen Caldicott's 2013 Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Consequences of the Fukushima Accident. In this too-brief interview, Dr. Yablokov talks about what Chernobyl has to tell us about Fukushima. I'm talking with Alexei Yablokov here at Dr. Caldicott's Symposium. Tell us briefly what you shared with the audience about what Chernobyl has to tell us about Fukushima. Both Chernobyl and Fukushima became more clear. If we count the consequences for public health, it looked like the existing norm and regulation, official norm and regulation, not enough to protect people from negative consequences of irradiation. It's a big question why. I try to explain it. We have a lot of explanation why. Because it's impossible to catch all radionuclid. It's impossible to precisely estimate irradiation during first days, first hours, first weeks, when level of irradiation 100 thousand million times less than it will be but as a result as a result of this all of these difficulties the existing norm it existing safety regulation it not safety not enough safety this is the main lesson from chernobyl and we have absolutely the same situation in fukushima also maybe interesting it's impossible to trust official declaration. Official declaration and industry representative, their logic to diminish any consequences. So what have to be answered for normal people, for society? We have no right, have no right to believe official declaration, have no right to believe, to trust industry. It means what consequences for society? It means that we need to create independent system for check radiation. Independent, because we have now a lot of nuclear power plant all over the globe. It means that every country, every society which situated around the nuclear power plant have to have some possibility for independent measurement, level of radiation. Japanese experience in Fukushima show that it's possible. It was impossible in Soviet time in Chernobyl because it's too secrecy, no money, KGB, local KGB follows every people who, who measurement. But in Fukushima, society, Japanese society show that it's quite possible to organize independent from state, independent from industry system for monitoring of radiation. It's a key problem, maybe key problem 
for safety life even in the United States. Because, look, two years ago, some German scientist friend of mine showed that even normal working nuclear power plant in some part of year released much more radionuclide than it average report average. Average is very dangerous. It not protect person, not protect individual. We need monitoring every day because, for example, every nuclear power plant takes spent nuclear fuel and this, during this operation, enormous release, enormous. But when it's average for year, nothing dangerous. But it will be dangerous for people who happen just now, just in this place, when this operation release. So we need some independent monitoring. It's also a lesson from Chernobyl, lesson from Fukushima. The late, great Dr. Alexei Yablokov. Activist shout-outs! Two of our best have some terrific articles out this week. The inimitable Harvey Wasserman of Solartopia has an article in Progressive.org entitled Crumbling Reactors and Other Nightmares of a Trump-Perry Energy Policy. That speaks for itself, but he's got a whole lot more to say as well. We'll have a link up under Missing Links on the website NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode number 291. Also, there will be a great counterpunch article from Kevin Camps, who is the nuclear waste bulldog at Beyond Nuclear. His article is entitled, Radioactive Waste is Good for You, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Rick Perry as Energy Secretary. I think you're seeing a theme here. And a third of our eminent leaders... Our eminence gris, or gray eminence, Professor Carl Grossman, published an article in informable.com, An Engineer's Perspective on the Indian Point Shutdown. And rather than go into details about this, I've just learned that Carl has made himself available for an interview, and we will have him up on next week's show discussing these very points. And motherjones.com has just published a map the nuclear bombs in your backyard. This will allow you to look up where in the United States the Pentagon keeps its atomic weaponry. Mm -mm -mm. Just the kind of neighbor you really don't want to have. You can zoom in on the map to find the warheads nearest you, as well as the nuclear labs that maintain the stockpile and to develop the next generation of atomic weaponry. And just for the heck of it, Mother Jones threw in the nation's civilian nuclear power stations as well. That link will also be up on the website. But what no longer works is the CNN Money site, where you used to be able to put your zip code in and get a list of every nuclear reactor in proximity to you. I think the radius was 200 miles. But it stopped working at some point. I've tried emailing, contacting. I've even talked with some CNN people when I was at the Society of Professional Journalists Conference. And nothing helped. So if there are any computer programming people within our community who would be able to put one of these together, let's come up with one of our own so we're no longer indebted to the corporate powers that be to keep running sites that just might undermine their perspectives. It's a thought. Speaking of which, here's today's final thought. This Saturday, January 21st, 2017, 
I will be participating in the Women's March. While much of the reason for marching is in defense of a woman's legal right to control her own body, specifically her right to reproduce or not, I haven't seen much mentioned in the ramp-up to this international action that deals with nuclear issues, specifically radiation. But radiation is definitely a woman's reproductive issue. It disproportionately impacts a woman's reproductive systems, damages eggs and fetuses, causes miscarriages, stillbirths, birth defects, and genetic damage that passes through generations. If women are standing up to defend their rights, our rights, to health and safety, that has to include a stand against nuclear radiation and all the ways the corporations and the government bring that deadly toxin up close and personal with our bodies. It's a lot to put on a sign, and it definitely won't show up on my crocheted pink pussy hat. But hopefully... I'll be able to get into some good conversations and plant some mental seeds. After all, it's only our future that's at stake. Have a good march. And by the way, men, you are cordially invited to join us and you will be welcomed. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 17, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from europeannewsweekly.wordpress.com, radical.org, capecodtimes.com, miaminewstimes.com, stltoday.com, forbes.com, elpasoheraldpost.com, and formable.com, counterpunch.com, truth-out.org, progressive.org, nhk.or.jp, expatica.com, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, courtesy the work of Erica Gray, and the big-hearted planet protectors and peaceful warriors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook, which you are all invited to come visit, join, like, and share our posts with your loved ones and with those people who love nukes and you just want to gripe them off. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a gentle reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as possible. Take a moment and send a donation, even a supporting donation, to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing that any anti-nuclear activist wants to be able to say is, I told you so. So we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Do not Go back to sleep, because we need to do all the work we can, because we're all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot
The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.